0: The Eco Right Speaks podcast is your conservative home for weekly climate news, interviews, points of view, climate heroes, jesters, and so much more. We'll share the stories of people leading in their local communities and around the country. Welcome to the Eco Right Speaks podcast. It's brought to you by RepublicEN.org.
1: Hello, and welcome to the Eco-Right Speaks, your climate-focused podcast produced by the team at RepublicEN.org. I'm your host, Chelsea Henderson. Is it just me, or did the month of October fly by? I actually have a lot of family birthdays in October, and to be honest, I missed all of them, not forever, but by a day or two, including my mom's. I know, I'm in trouble. I have a feeling that the rest of 2023 is just going to zoom on by. But before we get to that point, today's guest comes to us via one of Bob Inglis's speaking events in Moscow, Idaho. Colby Field is a master's degree student in ag economics, and as you will hear later in the show, he was really struck, Bob was really struck, that is, by Colby and his questions about the inclusion and consideration of the ag sector and climate solutions. He was a pleasure to talk to, and I look forward to sharing his perspectives with you. Listeners, my conversation with Colby Field is coming right up. Welcome back, listeners. Very excited to have coming at me from Idaho, Colby Field. Colby, welcome to the show. Thanks.
2: Glad to be here.
1: I think it's really ironic that your last name is Field and you come from family farmers. Do people say that all the time?
2: Oh, yeah, I get that a lot.
1: <laughs> what does your family farm? Tell us a little bit about that.
2: So, so my background, um, I did not grow up on a family farm. I'm one generation removed from the the family farming. They moved into different sectors, still agriculture and education, but I've had been blessed after my agricultural undergraduate education to work on a family farm here in the area that my family is from. It's a pretty standard farm for the area, about 3,500 3, acres of primarily wheat as the cash crop with a couple of other rotationals. I got to work for them for three full years. And then a couple summers now that I've started my graduate education here at University of Idaho. So a lot of good hands-on experience after studying agriculture in undergrad, being exposed to it during my youth. So some on-farm experience. um, And obviously, climate change is going to be an issue for agriculture. It is something tied to the natural world and tied to the land. And so this is going to be a huge part of the way we adapt to continuing to feed the world.
1: Right. I mean, that is the thing that actually scares me the most is that, you know, we talk a lot about the impacts of climate change, but what I don't think we talk enough about is farmers feed the world, right? We we need these lands to remain um, to remain viable for crops. We see reports where there could be crop shifts, right? You are out west where there are droughts all the time. Talk to me about some of the things that that farmers in your area are really experiencing and concerned about.
2: So the one good thing about agriculture is our superpower is adapting to change because no year is the same as the last year. So I wouldn't be that afraid about our ability to produce food, but we know things are going to change. Um, As far as out here, drought is an issue for sure. Um, As climate change increases, they are becoming less and less predictable. They are potentially becoming more severe. On the other hand, that unpredictability is leading to wet weather which can impact your ability to plant crops, your ability to harvest crops, and change the practices that you have to use to be effective. Um, The big squeeze on farmers, at least commodity farmers, your, your mid to larger size farm, is the fact that farmers have no control over the price of their end good. It is determined by an international market, people's demand all over, traders spend thousands of hours a day all over the world trying to determine what price tomorrow might be. And generally they can't predict what the price is going to be in three hours from now. So farmer's squeeze is the fact that, okay, you have an uncontrolled final revenue and you have to adapt to whatever's occurring today and plan forecast ahead to try and produce the best possible crop and the highest revenue under those conditions. And U S agriculture has shown over the last hundred years that we're pretty good at that.
1: Is that because you have a magic eight ball? So you shake the magic eight ball and you're like, okay, do we plant in February? (laughs) Uh, The uh,
2: the, the big piece is, you know, predict past performance predicts future performance, but there's always an error there. Um, Not to get too statistical on you, but um, that generational knowledge, how we've done it before with current research really drives forward thinking in agriculture. And this area in particular I'm seeing a lot of very forward-thinking farmers that I've interacted with in adopting that research, looking for new solutions, trying to vary up their rotations, trying to conserve soil, knowing that, you know, the, the food produced in this area feeds most of the Pacific Rim. Uh, our, our Asian allies across the Pacific Ocean depend on the wheat that is produced in this area to feed themselves. So they take that pretty seriously. Um, As far as adopting new technologies, there's a whole bunch of stuff in precision ag that's very much being researched and implemented across the U.S. for how do we, you know, apply the correct amount of fertilizer? How do we increase the efficiency of our tractors and equipment for planting and harvesting and soil management? On top of there's a large movement in conservation for resources, for water. For soil, trying to reduce tillage so that you're not releasing carbon that's stored in the soil into the atmosphere, not watching your soil wash away in the river. So, farmers overall are, I, I'm reddening to use the word progressive because that's been sort of taken by the media these days. But <laughs> as far as looking ahead, farmers are really good about adopting new technologies and trying to increase efficiency across them.
1: Forward so. thinking, I think, is a great way to describe it. And you, you know, everything that you just um, recounted to me, all I kept thinking is, of course, if there's so much unpredictability, you have to be adaptable. You have to be willing to change. And when you were talking about conservation, there are so many ways to conserve. And sometimes, you know, the new precision tools or whatever help you with that conservation effort. So I think while there might be some um, inaccurate, Know, vision that farmers are first of all all older generation too resistant to um, to technology and to change it that is just not true And
2: if you're a farmer and you haven't adapted, you're not going to be a farmer very long. That's just the reality of it.
1: So talk to our listeners who are um, perhaps not as well versed in the different um, ag practices that might be forward thinking like what do things like rotational um, crops? How does that
2: help? Um, There's several factors of rotation. Uh, We've been doing crop rotation since the Romans. However, a lot of research has been done in terms of industrial agriculture since the 1950s, 40s on the benefits of rotation. So most farms will have what we would call a cash crop. It's your primary money maker, Mm -hmm. And so you want to prioritize that, obviously, because you're going to have the highest return on that crop. In this area, that would be winter wheat, white winter wheat. You go to Montana, where my undergraduate was, it tends to be red wheat. You go to Iowa, Minnesota, our, our corn belt, that's going to be corn. That's your money maker. The trouble with, if you plant the same crop in the field over and over and over again, number one, your yield is going to decrease because you're pulling all of the same nutrients out of the soil and nothing's being replenished unless you're putting artificial nutrients in there, such as fertilizers. Um, and you have a higher chance of disease. It's easier for a... a an insect or a bacterium that attacks wheat to build up and get stronger if you're continuously exposing it to wheat. So there's a major advantage that from a disease standpoint to, to rotating your crops, different types of crops, vastly different families of crops as well as the advantage of, of risk management. If price of wheat suddenly crashes because, um, we've found a whole new, we've got a great spring in what Ukraine when they used to export wheat, um, we you have beans that might still be steady. You have barley and the demand for beer may be staying constant. So there's a there's a risk and diversification aspect to it. Plus, every plant interacts with the soil slightly differently. Some plants put different nutrients into the soil and take different nutrients. So in this area, pre-traditional rotation would be your moneymaker, your your, your winter wheat. You put a third of your ground into that. You put a third of your ground into a different sort of mid-level revenue generator, so a spring wheat crop or a uh, canola or, or mustard um, or a barley. And then your legume is your va- vastly different crop that is usually worth less money, but they put nitrogen into the soil to help replenish for the next uh, money-making wheat crop. Um, in the Midwest, you'd see corn and soybeans using a very similar
1: I mean, I love it. It's like um, if you are an investor, you have a diverse investment portfolio. You're not putting exactly. all your money into one stock, right? Absolutely.
2: Diversify that portfolio to spread risk among different different yeah. um, revenue streams so that if one crashes or one does really well, you've, you've got some balance there. Absolutely. And farmers tend to be fairly risk averse because control as much as you can to limit yeah. that risk because it may hail tomorrow and wipe it all out anyway.
1: That is such a scary feeling, I'm sure. And You know, speaking of being risk averse, I I just remember years, 15 or so years ago when I was working on climate legislation in the U.S. Senate, that the ag community was really worried about any kind of federal regulations that would come down um, on carbon, on climate change. But the wheat growers especially were kind of out front and wanting to promote um, carbon offsets and using your land for carbon sinks and so forth. So I know there are definitely ways to engage with agriculture on being part of the climate solution. From your perspective, what are those best entry points so that ag feels like it's part of the solution? It's at the table and it's not, as we like to say, on the menu and going yeah. to be you know burdened by any policies that end up coming forward.
2: The main asset of agriculture is the land, without a doubt. Um, we know that the number that the best place to 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 sink carbon is the ocean. The second best place to sink carbon are wetlands, and the third best is grasslands. Well, a wheat field is a grassland. We grow grass where grass used to grow, and wheat is a grass. All that root mass stores carbon in the soil. So that has historically been an untapped value to farms that we have not looked at. You know, the amount of carbon storage, the amount of um, resource generation from the land. So that is definitely a very positive realm to look. Farmers also are working on efficiency. Um, We we hear all these reports about all of the agrochemicals that we use. Agrochemicals are expensive. Farmers don't want to use any more of an agrochemical than they absolutely have to to produce optimum yields and optimum quality of food. Um, Same fault goes for fertilizer. We talk about farmers over fertilizing. Well, these new precision technologies very much allow us to tailor that fertilizer. We're not quite down to individual plants in row crops, but we are definitely down to 20 foot squares of plants in what we can apply fertilizer to this area that is really good. Let's put a little more fertilizer to get a bump. This area that's really bad in production, let's reduce that fertilizer because we're basically wasting it and watching it leach. So, there, there's a lot, this, these precision ag technologies from a field standpoint are making a huge difference. On a standpoint of conservation programs, farmers are getting more and more attuned with working with USDA mm-hmm. on making these conservation initiatives, water holding, soil control, planting at the appropriate time, cost effective. Because unfortunately, these these conservation programs are very expensive to implement on a farm. And farm per acre revenues are not very high. The, the, the total profit on an average year in this area is about $50 an acre. Um It's remarkably low when you actually look at the numbers. I went through the numbers from University of Idaho's um, agricultural crop budgets last year. And it, and that's for wheat, which is the, the money maker. Some of those crops, peas, lentils, lose money on average on a year. So, you know, it's hard to come to a farmer who's got a razor-thin margin and say, We need you to take those 20 acres out of production because we think they'd be really good for holding carbon and holding water, knowing that, you know, we just took a bunch of your revenue away, Um, not to mention the time and energy to implement that program. So there there is a place for government definitely in helping with those conservation pieces. Mm -hmm. The big cost agriculture is how tied they are to fossil fuels. And there's people working on that, but it's really hard to beat the amount of energy you can have in a gallon of diesel. I, I, as I said I ran the numbers off the budget and the revenue, the amount of money going into, into fossil fuels from fuel and lubricants for working a field in this area was about thirty percent of the revenue. Total right. revenue goes in, and it was it was about forty percent of total var- of total costs per acre. It's pretty significant. I, I I looked at let's say you had the their number was a twenty five hundred acre farm. I took a third of that because you'd have a third of that in wheat. And you look, you came out to about a hundred thousand dollars a year in fuel and lubricants to farm that farm. And that's diesel. And that was diesel in 2022, not today. So, and that's not looking at, you know, the fossil fuels and carbon impact of buying equipment. That's not looking into the fact that pretty much all of our agrochemicals are in some way fossil fuel derived. There's a huge impact. Agriculture is dependent on that fossil fuel stream at this point. And I don't know that enough is being done in terms of technology to move us away from that.
1: Like there aren't, Um, for example, EV tractors.
2: Correct. There are several companies working on like semi-trucks, tractor Uh trailers that are electric, and they're struggling to get that. Well, the amount of power that a combine needs versus a a semi-truck, we're talking magnitudes of scale there, the amount of batteries that would be required to run that. And, you know, a combine runs... 14, 16, 18 hours a day during harvest. That takes a lot of energy. Diesel fuel stores a lot of energy in a very small package. So that's going to be the big rub is how do we reduce that fossil fuel dependency and still allow family farms to exist? I mean, we could cut off the, the, the tap tomorrow, but family farms would be wiped out across the street. We're energy optimists and climate
0: realists. Stand with us at RepublicEN.org. Now
2: back to this week's
0: episode.
1: What about like compressed natural gas? Is that an option?
2: There are some possibilities. I I don't know. Agricultural equipment is pretty well dominated by three major producers, which two of them were partnered together with New Holland Case. But John Deere, New Holland Case tend to be the big suppliers for U.S. ag I haven't seen much in terms of conversions to to natural gas engines. I know that that can be done with gasoline engines fairly efficiently. I think that's um, kind of no more brave. like a
1: pickup truck, like I know, like some work vehicles, but probably yeah. not not your you know your huge farm equipment. That you yeah, exactly. Energy, um,
2: and and that's the the big concern is you know any more with in commodity agriculture to be profitable, you got to be at a certain level of scale, and that requires a certain level of scale of equipment. Uh, Just because you don't, there's only so many hours you can have. There's only 24 hours you can have a person in a piece of equipment, um, and that's if they never sleep. So um, that's the limitation. You got to be at a certain scale of equipment, and I just don't know if that scale is going to be there in the short term. You also have the fact that most farms aren't running last year's equipment; they're running 10, 15 year old equipment for it to be affordable in their budgets. So. There is some promise. Pace and John Deere are both looking at robotic agricultural equipment, so tractors that are entirely humanless mm-hmm. and small scale, mm-hmm. So, but they can run 24 7, seven days a week. So you don't have that same human operator limitation. And then you can run it at a smaller scale if it just runs forever. So there is probably some promise in that in the future, but we're, it's very much an infant technology.
1: So then, okay, so given how reliant ag is on fossil fuels, how do you see that sector kind of fitting into the solutions table so that when we are talking about climate solutions, one, they're not left out, but two, they're also not saddled with policies that end up making their jobs harder or put them out of business or cost, you know, put them beyond that very small margin that they're already experiencing?
2: The easiest answer would be to increase farm income. Um, if you can increase farm income, they can adapt to newer technologies that are more efficient and aren't as reliant on mm-hmm. fossil fuels. But you know, we're talking about international commodities that everybody wants to be cheap. Yeah. Um, so how do you increase farm income? And if I had that solution, I'd be the Dow chair somewhere, and would, <laughs> it would be working on much bigger problems. Well, um, yeah,
1: I give you. I I think you've got time to develop that. You're early on in your career. I I I'm going to check in with you in 20 years and see if you figured that out.
2: So other ways we can do this number one i think we need a an accurate picture of what the on-farm carbon emissions actually are because as i said we haven't really looked into carbon storage on farms and calculated that Mm -hmm. um i know there's some, some researchers who are working on that in several areas of the country but actual net what is the net um release of carbon Mm-hmm. um in water there's also an interesting look in virtual water so when you look at irrigated crops where does you know water that gets put on in a, in a furrow and flows into the crops and a bunch of it flows back into the water system well that's not water leaving the system whereas water that goes into a crop and gets taken to market that water leaves i think virtual carbon where does that carbon go and who is you know who is bearing the, the, that that Carbon gets produced when we pump it out of an oil well in Wyoming or Oklahoma mm-hmm. or whatever. It gets refined. It goes to the farm. It gets burned. That means it's going into a crop. What is the carbon footprint of that crop and where is it going? We need a better tabulation of what farm carbon pollution for better sake of a for, for better um, finding of a word looks like and
1: i like the idea um, of this being a net figure right so that it also incorporates the carbon sinks so that it's
2: exactly not just yep. these big
1: bad farmers it's also taking into exactly yeah. what
2: what is what is this net net release from the farm it, in it it may or may not be, be even a you know a positive emissions i mean when you think about how you know the carbon that's sequestered by four thousand acres of plants growing every day and the fact that we from that plant what we take away is a tiny you know a handful of tiny little kernels and leave so much of the rest of that carbon to be stored in that soil, farms may not be emitting carbon. Obviously, my experience as a row crop, animal operations may be slightly different. That's not my specialty. So So looking at that net, looking at ways that we can actually incentivize transition to these new technologies, there's some USDA funding for adapting precision technologies. But when it really comes down to it, Farms are going to need to radically change their equipment, and we're talking equipment that starts at twenty thousand dollars. There are tractors that are and combines that are easily half a million dollars. Sure. I think the brand new John Deere double rotor um, corn harvester comes out at about a million. Brand. This, this technology is going to be there for us to re- release our you know reduce our carbon. But if you're a third tier, you know you buy the the two pre two previous owner combine. You know, it's going to be 20 years before you get to that new technology. Well, that's an easy way that we can use, you know, government policy, financial options to make it way easier for these farmers to afford those new technologies that will reduce their fossil fuel dependence.
1: Really That's... thought about the like the longevity of some of that equipment, and even just you know I don't have a farm, I have a home office yep. with a computer. If yep. I had to replace my computer every year, that would be financially you know crippling for me, so like to think about a million dollar piece of equipment and something that it is a capital, there are capital investments that you're hoping are gonna be um viable for you for decades, and so of what you were just saying so eye-opening I think especially if we have new technologies the trickle down effect of when those used new technologies will get to some of the smaller entities is yep. really one I hadn't thought of
2: before I think that's an area that we could really help these farmers adapt because mm-hmm. um, that's going to be the hiccup it's it's not the it's not the adapt you know putting new new tips on that put a little bit less fertilizer in or a computer system that you know costs a thousand dollars to track what your yields are per gps unit so you can see how the fertilizer impacted and where you can reduce it where where you can you know need to increase it's not even developing new tillage and non-tillage practices it's going to be that equipment because that's what burn at the end of the day it's the the big tractors that we need to run to have scale that burn 30 gallons an hour of diesel that's what where the carbon footprint is That plus trucking, but they usually look at transportation as a slightly different industry. But, you know, every farm has to truck that commodity somewhere. So we have big diesel trucks to do that, too. It's like a construction firm. Your money isn't in your guys. Your money is in your tools. Your money is in your um, backhoes to dig ditches. In farms, your money is in your equipment. Farms don't really have, you know, they have a lot of money tied up in land, but land doesn't really depreciate in value and decrease in efficiency. Equipment does. So it's that... It's that equipment piece that's going to be the big factor.
1: Um, Colby, you're getting your master's degree right now, as as you obviously know in applied economics. What what does the future hold for you? What are you hoping to do with this career? I assume you're going to stay stay in the ag sector, um, but tell us what you're thinking about moving forward.
2: Perfect world after this, I'd like to work in university extension, which is the mm-hmm. agriculture and and rural community outreach branch of most state land-grant universities. Yeah. Um, so they are the interplay between the PhD research researchers in soil science and agricultural economics and water quality and producers and people in rural communities. So my job would be to you know stay on top of what the new research is that's being done by these high-level researchers at university level and any other relevant um, studies done by private entities And when a farmer calls me and says, hey, I'm having a hard time making, trying this new crop, pay. have you found anything? I say, yeah, I've got these three studies that I know about, or I can call this professor, that's his specialty, and say, this is what they found in their research test plots to make this work. Or this is what they found in their availability of using insurance products to, you know, cover your risk for this. So basically that sort of mediating voice a channel for access for producers. And I, and I say rural communities because there's a lot of rural economic development side of that, a lot of working with youth to try mm-hmm. and, you know, increase their knowledge of agriculture, get them to to, to potentially come into the agricultural industry and develop that uh, in the future. So that's sort of my goal after this is to work in, in, in some form of university extension as an educator.
1: Is there a workforce gap of between young, like older generations wanting to retire and and new generations coming up?
2: Surprisingly yes um, now it varies across the US what your percentage of young and beginning farmers is. Um, USDA has a huge push for trying to get young and beginning farmers but I believe the average age of a farmer in this country is still 65 and that's average. So we're talking generally a much older work you know, you know ownership population who are still farming It's not unheard of for people in their 80s to still be farming. so there's a push. Now, we are needing less and less farm labor as it goes along. When my grandfather was born in 1924, there was 95, 92 percent of U.S. population worked in ag. Today, we're about one and a half percent, maybe even a little less than that. So, you know, we're, we're needing less people, but there tends to be a disconnect of people not wanting to go back to the farm. You figure someone my age, I'm 30, who's gone left the farm gone and got an education has the opportunity to go to a metropolitan area and make six figures
0: mm-hmm.
2: or i can go back to the farm i can work 12 to 14 hour days six days a week and pull in 50 grand uh, you can see why the appeal isn't there they're trying to incentivize more people now i don't want to say that fa- family farms are dying because of this we're still well above 90 percent of u.s farms are family farms mm-hmm. um and it's a cultural thing it's uh a pride and a legacy thing. There's usually someone who wants to go back to farm. One of the two to five kids will want to go back Mm -hmm. and and be on the operation. But there are operations that don't have someone to come back to them. There are some programs out there to try and lead people who want to get into ag with those operations to try and learn them and take them over. But there is some succession planning issues. And that's been a big focus of a lot of university education, outreaches for succession planning these days.
1: Yeah, it's all very complicated. And I feel like you just peeled the veil back a little to give me a glimpse inside some of the challenges face, facing the ag industry and some of the assistance that's needed to help um, moving forward. It doesn't
2: just show up on the shelf. It doesn't grow yeah. in the back <laughs> right. room at Walmart. It takes an awful lot to get yeah. there.
1: So much to from like seed to <laughs> loaf of bread at the at the table. And uh I, I did read this article. Um, it was, gosh, it was a few years ago that was saying that because of climate change, and I forget how many years into the future this was, let's just say 50 years, that Idaho was going to be the new Napa Valley, that the way the temperatures were shifting, you were going to be the new wine destination. Yep, in- there's a lot of
2: wine development here. Idaho's now number three, waffling three and four with Texas for dairy production. You eat mozzarella cheese? Chances are it comes from southern Idaho. It's the number one barley producer. Um, so if you like beer or whiskey, it's coming, probably coming from Idaho. And Idaho is in a pretty nice climatic zone to have a large variety. So and and Idaho's Idaho growing.
1: <laughs> I said this. It's on a beautiful a, place. A few weeks ago, we had um, some Idaho physicians on the show talking about um, um, sustainability in the healthcare sector and. I think the bottom line is I need to get myself to Idaho. You have a lot to offer. And I'm just really, I feel good knowing that you are in this industry and applaud you for um, the work that you do. And just so grateful to have you on the show. Like I said, explaining some of these more complicated um, ag issues to us and what we need to be thinking about moving forward um, as we work to solve climate change together and not in a way that is, you know, command and control on any one particular. Exactly.
2: Exactly. It's going to take all of us working together, it's going to take not just one perspective, because one perspective, the, the dominant perspective these days is not going to actually solve these problems.
1: Thank you so much for your time, Colby.
2: Thank you. Are you a young conservative who's passionate about the environment? Introducing Green Tea Party Radio the show that blends conservative solutions with environmental advocacy. Hey there, I'm Hannah. And I'm Zach. I'm Katie. Join us every week as we discuss how conservatives can champion energy independence, tackle climate change, and create clean energy sector jobs, all while staying true to our values.
1: Get ready to pour the tea and join the Green Tea Party. Tune in and engage with thought-provoking discussions that matter to you. Subscribe today and visit greenteapartyradio.com for more information. Listeners, we're doing something a little different this week. I have a special surprise. We are wrapping up today's episode with none other than Bob Inglis. Bob, welcome to the show.
0: Thanks, Chelsea. Great to be with you.
1: So as you know, Bob, I wanted you to come on to do wrap up with me because today's guest, which I know you did not have the benefit. You do not have the benefit at the current moment of having heard the episode, But Colby Field was somebody that you found and recommended for the show. So I thought maybe you could tell our listeners how you identified Colby, like what your interaction was like and why he really struck you as somebody who would make a good guest.
0: Wow. Colby was such a great find, you know, somebody that uh, really has an experience in a very important agricultural sector. You know, Uh, he's getting a master's degree in economics uh, at the University of Idaho, He's worked the last five wheat harvest. Um, His family for generations has been involved in farming. And uh, these are the people that feed the world, you know. I mean, uh, um, people like Colby and his family feed the rest of us. And um, so he asked some really important questions To to tell you the truth, I didn't have very good answers to. (laughs) Um, And uh, so uh, we we need Colby to help us uh, as he continues with uh, economics to uh, help us uh, sort some things out about uh, the impact of a uh, pricing of carbon dioxide on agriculture.
1: Yeah, he's definitely thinking about these issues and how – how to take an industry like ag or a, a sector of the economy like ag that is so fossil fuel dependent. And, you know, he wants to work with people that are talking about climate solutions, right? And I think that's what is the what really separates Colby from maybe um ag people 20 years ago when you were on the hill, or when I was working on climate change bills 15 years ago, there was a lot of resistance, right, from that sector. And um, but he, he knows and farmers know they, as he put it, um, he had a really great way of putting this, that, uh, you know, farmers have to be forward thinking because nothing is going to be tomorrow. Like it was yesterday and they're used to, uh, managing risk and change and having to adapt. And so, you know, they're great allies to have in, in this, um, in this battle. So, so glad that you met Colby at the, it was at the university of Idaho, Correct.
0: Yeah, and, and what a, I agree with you. What a great way to put it. Nothing tomorrow is going to be the same as yesterday. That's surely the case in agriculture because uh, the climate impacts are here and now. And so that's what's um, important about people like Colby is he, he's aware of that and also aware of the importance of agriculture. Like I say, we've all gotten used to eating and uh, we need the incredible productivity that you see out there in Idaho. You know, I've, you know, I've talked about this every time I've come back from Idaho about this sea of wheat that you see out there in those fields. I mean, literally it's like you're in the ocean, except it's wheat as far as the eye can see. It's
1: beautiful. It's beautiful. Really? Yeah.
0: And so productive and so amazing that these people are able to feed the rest of us. And, um, you know the thing that's interesting about that wheat, by the way, is you know he probably told you this is that it goes uh, to uh, most of it goes to Asia to feed people with yes. noodles because yes. it's uh, it's it's a low gluten wheat that you use for noodles.
1: Yeah, he he definitely explained that to me, and that was uh, something new that I learned, and I love learning something new on this podcast and. So I thank you, Bob, for for directing me to Colby, and I hope he's somebody that we will continue to have a good relationship with um, moving forward. And um, speaking of new and all that is new, I cannot let our listeners go without just shouting out a couple of our new member signups: Addie R in Virginia, Andrew S in New York, Christian D in Tennessee, Althea L in Indiana, and Sue P and. Iowa, thank you for standing with us. Uh, Republican.org forward slash join. If you want to hear all that we're doing, week in review, which Bob, you know, I send every week. It's really the only regular specific day message that you'll get from us. And you'll get a few polls from Angela and you'll get some other engagement opportunities. But we do not send messages every day. We don't spam you. We don't ask you for money. So if you just want to be in touch with the right, we are the people to be uh, engaged with. Right, Bob?
0: Yes. And we really don't hound you for money. That is a true <laughs> statement. We don't. Uh, maybe one time a year, at the end of the year, we say, well, if you'd like to give, that'd be great. But we don't hound you for money, and we really do need you to be visible because the key is to... Make uh, make this constituency conservatives who care about climate change visible to uh, members of the U.S. House and members of the U.S. Senate. And once we make them visible, then that constituency will have uh, have some leaders. It will have people that with uh, voting cards in their pockets that uh, will lead the constituency. And so it's very important for us to um, to help make people visible and audible in saying, hey, you know what? We are conservative and we care about climate change.
1: Most important people in the climate fight, as you like to say.
0: (laughs) Absolutely. Indispensable partners in the indispensable nation.
1: Well, if that's you, listener, or you know somebody who you think that describes, join us or send them our way. And then I just cannot let you all go without giving my thanks to Bob for being such a great leader and having us all together. He inspires us daily and uh, lets me and Price just do this podcast. <laughs> we don't have to approve our guests ahead of time. He sends guests our way when, like Colby when he finds somebody good. But uh, really, it's there are very few jobs, I think, where you have somebody who just says, you do what you're good at and go do it. And so we appreciate you, Bob, for providing the leadership, but also giving us the creativity and and the space to to make this show how we how we envisioned it in the beginning.
0: Well, you're good and it shows. And so uh, it's great (laughs) to have you handle it. It's terrific.
1: Well, thank you, Bob. And thank you, listeners. We'll be back at you next week with another um, guest coming from Bob. Roderick Scott is going to talk to us about flood issues in Louisiana. And so come back and uh, listen to what he has to say about that. And we'll see you next week.
0: Thanks for listening to this week's edition of the Eco Right Speaks podcast brought to you by the team at RepublicEN.org. Make sure to visit RepublicEN.org to learn more and find out how you can be a local eco-right leader.